This week on Geek Explained, for our 280th episode. And in anticipation of the upcoming Netflix adaptation, we're doing an in-depth discussion on why Yu Yu Hakusho is my favorite anime of all time. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is our 280th installment of the Geek Explained podcast. It is kind of wild to me. We're on the march to 300, but 280 episodes is kind of incredible to think about. Um, it's been a long road with a lot of bumps, but I'm immensely proud of every single one of our 280 episodes, and I am very excited to celebrate this big milestone by talking about my favorite anime of all time. I've mentioned it before, we did an entire month of anime-themed episodes way back in 2020. What a... feels like six years ago. And I have been beating the drum for this show and for this, I mean, this property for a really long time. And over the past couple months, I've been getting, you know, to, I've been lucky enough to talk about it with other people, to uh, expose them to it. And it just seemed like the right time to take this moment to talk about why I love Yu Yu Hakusho. So that is what today's episode is about. We also have our newest weekly review on the very first special of Doctor Who in 2023, celebrating 60 years of the franchise that has captured so many hearts and minds across the world. This is going to be our review of The Star Beast, so stay tuned for that, as well as... Of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll be chatting you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. Now, I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday if you celebrated, if you are in the U.S. or a U.S. citizen abroad. If not, I hope you all enjoyed Doctor Who Day. It was really weird that Doctor Who Day also happened to coincide with Thanksgiving. It's very strange. But um, I worked, obviously. I'm in the uh, food and hospitality business, so I worked all day. It was a very, very long day. But I got to have a nice Friendsgiving with uh, some near and dear friends to uh, to me. And, of course, again, we got to enjoy some new Doctor Who content. So this week was a nice one. I enjoyed it. I hope you had a good week, too. But without further ado, let's get right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I discuss why I love Yu Yu Hakusho. Life can be painful, but it's only because the memories are good enough to miss. Nostalgia is a hell of a drug. 
Uh, it can fill you with joy, or it can make you long for something that no longer exists. Uh, it can be a source of comfort, or a weapon used against you. For me, the term always brings me back to a feeling that I got sitting in front of the TV as a wee lad and discovering something that has stuck with me well into adulthood. I've talked about it before. I've made no secret about how much I adore it and how much it means to me. But I've never discussed why. Why did it grab me at such a young age? Why did I fall in love with the world, the story, and the characters? Why has no other story grabbed me the same way? And why, after all these years, has it stuck with me the way it has? Well, today, as I look back on 280 episodes of this podcast, it is still crazy to think about. We're finally going to talk about it. It's been a long time coming, but I think I'm finally ready to discuss why I love Yu Yu Hakusho. It starts with the relationship that I have with anime. You know, I've talked about it before. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a pretty serious degree of loneliness. Um, I was a military brat. Dad served in the Air Force, we moved around a lot, and when I was a kid, I had a hard time connecting with people, because after the first couple moves of spending, you know, two to three years somewhere, making friends, making connections, and then being told, oh, you know, all of those connections are now going away, and you need to start over somewhere new, and you don't get a choice. That's a hard life for a kid. It's a hard life for anybody, really. But it made me, I guess, kind of bitter in a way without even really realizing it and made me slow to believe in lasting connection. And when I was a kid, I didn't really understand what that meant. I just knew that I felt lonely a lot of the time. And what helped that, what helped to deal with that constant change, the constant upheaval, the consistent feeling of loneliness was fiction. I've mentioned before, I fell in love with comic books and superheroes because of that, because it was something consistent, because no matter where I went, no matter how far away from the previous place I had lived we went, I would have superheroes. I would have comic books. And it's where I discovered Superman. My love for that character that has stuck with me for the test of time. And it's also where I discovered anime. Now, like with my love of comic books, my gateway was through my dad. We would wake up uh, or at least he would wake me up <laughs> uh, as he was getting ready for work and getting ready to either take me to school or wake me up so that I could get to school. And in those early mornings, I have no idea. I, I have no idea how this was or what 
TV channels looked like at this point, the late 90s, early 2000s. But early in the morning, whether it was through VHS tapes or actually being broadcast on air somewhere, I would usually wake up to anime. And it was usually either uh, Dragon Ball or Sailor Moon. (laughs) Uh, Dragon Ball was my gateway. Dragon Ball was the first ever anime that I experienced. Um, I would be introduced to Sailor Moon very shortly after. And then through that, I started to learn about more. Started to learn about your classics, your speed racers, your gigantors. Later on, falling in love with the medium and falling in love with stuff like Cowboy Bebop, Outlaw Star, the big O. Y'all remember the big O? But I fell in love with anime and began to love it just as much and sometimes uh, a little bit more than comic books because, you know, being an Asian American kid, you kind of fall in love with anime and it's, it's bred in, at least for me, it was, it was in my blood loving, loving that medium. And alongside loving comic books and stories of people overcoming great challenges alongside My love of anime and stories about people who are just trying to find their way in the worlds that they inhabit. I also fell in love with something else. And that was the supernatural. The occult. Uh, My mom, growing up, was a fan of anything that had to do with that. I grew up on, you know, first broadcasts and reruns of Charmed. Y'all remember Charmed? The original one? Yeah. And as time went on and as I started to grow up, my mom would embrace Wicca and she would, you know, bring us out for gatherings and she'd teach us about stuff. And Wiccan culture is fascinating to me. And one of my favorite, you know, blends of two of the three uh, topics that we've established so far was anime and the supernatural. And, you know, th- there's there's a reason why Kiki's Delivery Service is my favorite Studio Ghibli movie. It's my comfort movie. Uh, not just because it's an incredible movie and Studio Ghibli is just a comfort thing. Everything they pop out is comforting, except for certain films. Y'all know which ones I'm talking about. But I had these separate loves growing up. Comic books, anime supernatural and the occult and one property one story brought that all together in 2002 i discovered this story we were living in colorado at the time colorado springs we had been there for about two years uh, we celebrated the the birth of the new millennium in colorado springs and that feeling of loneliness hadn't gone away. It had stuck with me throughout my childhood. And in 2002, at 10 years old, I found myself after school, before bed, staying up late. Late for a 10-year-old, at least. Now, I had grown accustomed to Cartoon Network, like most kids my age and most people in my age bracket. Uh, 
Cartoon Network was a a network of two halves, one of which being, you know, classic, usually Warner Brothers properties, though every so often they'd bring in stuff that wasn't Warner Brothers based. And that kind of comprised the bulk of what you would find on that channel. However, every Saturday night, they also had a little thing called Toonami. And Toonami, gang, was the place to be, especially if you loved anime. You wanted your Sailor Moon here? You got it. You wanted your Dragon Ball Z? This was the place to find it. And I really had the fire of anime stoked in me for years because of Cartoon Network and because of Toonami. However, this night, I got, while watching my Dragon Ball, a commercial where I saw kids, not unlike me, in a town, not unlike mine, fighting against the supernatural. This rough-and-tumble kid who you could tell was dealing with a lot of stuff. Fighting demons and being a spirit detective. The only problem was... It wasn't on Toonami. And I was flabbergasted. I was disappointed. I was enraptured in the amount of gloom that only comes from being a kid and knowing that you can't watch something. Because this show called Yu Yu Hakusho would only be airing on Adult Swim. And at 10 years old, I was not an adult. Thankfully, during this night, I found myself awake. Past my bedtime, and with parents not around at that particular moment to send me off to bed, I got to watch the first episode of Yu Yu Hakusho. And I got to watch this kid, a little bit of a delinquent, not unlike myself, a little bit of an attitude problem, not unlike myself, be the lead character in an anime, in a story that I watched. You know, I was 10 years old and I was enamored with characters like Superman and Goku, but I could never, you know, be those characters. I could never aspire to be someone who flew and shot lasers out of his eyes or his hands. But I could be Yusuke. Yusuke Urameshi. Normal kid. Who just so happened to die in the first episode. And from there, I went on to fall in love with Yu Yu Hakusho as a story. I remember watching that first episode and being completely, completely brought in to the world, to the characters, to the story. It was unlike anything I had seen before. And as I grew to love this story, I grew to love anime. I grew to love me because in my mind I was watching a story about a kid who was you know obviously going through different problems than I was but had the same reactions to things that I would and a lot of that was in due part to what I consider the dub of all dubs 
this anime that was put together by Studio Periot, which you may not recognize the name, but you will recognize the anime that they've worked on. Naruto, Bleach, Tokyo Ghoul. They got their big claim to fame originally with Yu Yu Hakusho. And I know that there has always been a discussion, and I've talked about this before on my podcast and on other podcasts. The dub versus sub argument is, I think, something that is reductive in a lot of ways. And as I've grown older and as I've, you know, gone on to become a voice actor and learn about the intricacies of dubs in general and how much work it takes to put in the amount of effort to even make a dub happen, whether it's an anime uh, for video games or for live action dubs. There's a lot. And I've grown to appreciate dubs more so over time. But while I think that you should absolutely watch the sub or the dub of whatever you choose to watch when it comes to, you know, the anime that you consume. If you love subs, go for it. If you love dubs, go for it. There is one singular anime that I will always recommend watching the dub over the sub, and that is Yu Hakusho. Because this is the dub that made me fall in love with dubs. This is the dub that made me fall in love with voice acting. And I owe a lot of my love of voice acting, a lot of my love for characters to this show. And I would go on to bring it into all aspects of my little kid fandom. I got the action figures. I played the video games. And yes, that's video video games plural. Y'all are mostly thinking, oh, he played the Dark Tournament video game. Yes, absolutely I did that. But I was as obsessed about Yu Yu Hakusho as I've been obsessed about anything in my life. So I had to play everything that I could get my hands on, which included the terrible spirit detective game. It is god-awful. It is just the jankiest little Game Boy Advance game that you will find. But I had a blast playing through it. And I also absolutely love Tournament Tactics. It's probably, I would say, the best of the three. It's what got me in love with strategy games and, you know, turn-based, building your party. It It was very JRPG, and before I really understood what a JRPG was. And I got myself completely completely uh, immersed in that franchise and in the story of Yusuke Yurameshi and his friends. And there have been times where I've thought about, you know, why I fell in love with this so hard, why I had to be, you know, involved in it, why I had to play every video game, even though most of them are bad, why I had to get all the action figures, why I had to watch it from beginning to end. I mean, it was the first anime that I watched from the very start to the very end in broadcast, both edited and not edited, because eventually it did make its way to Toonami heavily edited, and I just, I did not like it as a kid. But 
you know, the question has always been, what made it so different to me? Why did I love it so much more than any other anime? And it has a lot to do with the setting, I think. The setting, the narrative, the story, before I could really appreciate what a narrative and what a setting brought to a story and why it would affect how much I loved something. Uh, Yu Yu Hakusho is the 90s anime. I know there are plenty of anime that might have, you know, higher quality, higher production value, might be more well-known, that were produced in the 90s. But this is the show that is 90s personified. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be talking a lot about the anime because it's how I originally consumed it. But this, this explanation goes almost doubly for the manga as well. And I'm going to get into the mangaka that, you know, created this whole thing. But the show was how I experienced the story for the first time. And it's one of the few times that I watched the show and then went back and read the manga. And that's, it's not the last time it would happen, but it certainly was the first and started the run of me doing that with stuff I loved. And the 90s setting of this show being, you know, the the story of these kids in a fictional Sarayashiki city that is seemingly kept in a bubble. The 90s is forever in that city, and it gives it this interesting, timeless feel to it, not unlike your Batman the Animated Series, a show that is constantly set in a very specific time period, unless it's Batman Beyond, which is 20 years later than whenever now is. But the outfits that people would wear, the technology that was available, the aesthetic the music that is used in the show is so almost offensively 90s that as a 90s kid there is a certain amount of nostalgia and there's a certain amount of comfort in having something that speaks so vividly to your childhood whether it's the big old color blocked blazers and windbreakers that characters like Yusuke Ware, whether it's the lingo that is used, some of the, you know, actual dubbing that is done that just screams late 90s, early 2000s. This show is a time capsule for me, and I absolutely adore it. Sorry, Ashiki City as a setting, as a setting for, I would say, probably... I mean, less than you would think, but I would say probably a third of the entire runtime. It's it's this magical little town that, you know, has been later aped for other projects and for other stories. Um, Yu Hawk Show is the main reason that I love uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 4. Um, Diamond is Unbreakable is basically a redux of Yu Yu Hakusho, and I love it for that. That's why it's my favorite JoJo part. But the story taking place largely in a city that has that kind of sleepy town vibe that is just inundated with weird supernatural bullshit is something that I love seeing in stories. And it started here. I love stories about weird shit happening to a normal town. You know, your gravity falls, your... your anything that involves stuff like this. I 
can trace my love of those kinds of stories back here to Yu Yu Hakusho. And having that city be the starting point, and then you later on get to explore the human realm, the spirit realm, and in the last arc, the demon realm, takes you from this seemingly normal space and constantly pushes the envelope on what you can do with this kind of story, with shonen battle manga. And watching these characters grow, change, and evolve alongside the settings that they are forced into, it's unlike anything I've ever read, and it's unlike anything I've ever watched. But the story as it stands, right... Yusuke Urameshi is a delinquent junior high school student. It always blows my mind that these are junior high school students. But he is a knucklehead. He is a rabble rouser. He is a rebel without a cause. And he seemingly lives a very uncharmed life. His father left when he was very small. His mom isn't really a parent to him. And he finds himself filled with a lot of, you know, trauma, a lot of neglect, and that manifests itself in anger. He's constantly getting into fights. He is known as the number one delinquent from his junior high school. And he's constantly getting in fights with Kazuma Kuwabara, the number two delinquent from his high school, uh, getting in fights with kids from other junior high schools. And he is known as this kind of, uh, this outlaw, this maverick in his communities. But there are still people that care about him in their own ways. The principal of his junior high school is trying so desperately to look out for him. Keiko the friend that he's had, the really the only friend that he has at the start of this, who, who they've known each other since they were very small, puts up with him and sees something in him, even though he doesn't see it in himself. And one day, he finds himself on a busy street corner where a kid is playing with a ball. He kicks it out into the road, and Yusuke notices a car coming towards this kid. Now, everything up to this point that we've learned about Yusuke, about being, you know, a little brash, a little arrogant, very hot-headed, would get you to assume that he would leave this kid be. But he doesn't. He pushes the kid out of the way, throwing himself in danger of the car, is hit by the car, and he dies. This is in the very first episode. <laughs> this is in the opening chapter. This is what sets up the story. Your main character died in the opening moments of your long odyssey. And from here, Yusuke Urameshi goes on a journey of self-discovery and of learning about the world around him that rivals any kind of odyssey or journey to the West. Now, Yusuke, because up until this point and through all, you know, projections and on, you know, paper predictions, Yusuke shouldn't have done that. That was out of character for him. 
And so he is confronted by Botan, this, you know, this anime's interpretation of the Grim Reaper, who tells him, you weren't supposed to do that, and we weren't planning on you to be to be dead for a very long time. So we are going to enlist you as a spirit detective, and if you work hard enough, you can get your life back. Now, this story goes on to go from very humble beginnings of Yusuke being, you know, basically the X-Files, a one-man X-Files, dealing with occults, you know, instead of alien stuff, it's usually demons and other, you know, mystical supernatural problems, you know, fighting off people who have robbed King Yema's vault to fighting the four sacred beasts of Demon World. And it grows into a story about someone learning to love and accept themselves and learning to love and accept people around them. But speaking of people around them, what makes a great cast? And that's another question that I think you have to ask when you're talking about something that you love and something that is maybe your favorite anime of all time and one of your favorite stories ever. It goes a lot down to the cast, to the characters that inhabit this world and the story. I've always been a character over plot kind of guy. I will more than forgive shaky plot and, you know, maybe unearned circumstances as long as those characters can sell it. And luckily, I don't have to worry about that with this story for the most part. But. The characters in this are truly some of the best that I've ever seen in any story ever. Now, like many stories that I find myself gravitating towards, this is a story of friendship and found family. You know, the the saying that the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The people that you love and the people that you choose to bring into your circle are your family. And having... You know, having that strength of character and having those bonds and those connections with people is a driving part of this story. It's perhaps the most important part for most of this story. And what I have grown to realize over the course of, you know, my adulthood and growing and finding new things that I've fallen in love with is the main cast of this story is quite possibly one of the greatest adventuring parties that you could possibly build in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. And I know I had to bring up Dungeons & Dragons because it's something that I fell in love with in my adult life and has grabbed me in much the same way as Yu Yu Hakusho has. But it's true. You get these characters together that each fill a niche in a story, in a role, in a party, and you watch them just soar. But the most important part is that they're not just they're not just characters for the sake of character, you know? They're not characters that fill, oh, we gotta, you know, find this character because he is the, you know, antithesis of this enemy, or this is the character that has the thing and the weapon that will allow us to defeat the big bad. These characters are also just characters. Some of my favorite parts of this show are when characters are just sitting around chatting or hanging out or just talking. 
And it's one of those things that when I was a kid, I gravitated towards because I wasn't having those conversations. I wasn't having those bonds with people that, you know, were shown to me on screen. And so falling in love with characters that are people made me love them even more than characters that I'd seen before, like your Dragon Balls, your your Sailor Moons, especially your Speed Racers. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that they were fully fleshed out, that they had id, they had pathos, they had everything, flaws, um, good qualities. They had all the stuff that made people people. They weren't paragons of anything, except maybe, you know, Keiko, who's just incredible. But they felt like people that you could run into on the street. They felt like people who you could go to school with. Even the most, you know, outlandish of the bunch, which I guess brings us to the first one I want to talk about. Kazuma Kuwabara. Kuwabara is maybe the best character of the show. And I know how that sounds. But Kuwabara is low-key the character that grows the most over the course of the show. He's the character that provides a lot of, obviously, uh, you know, provides a lot of the humor, a lot of the levity, but also provides a lot of the emotion and the drama in this show. In the very first episode, when they're going over, you know, Yusuke's death and he has a funeral, Kuwabara shows up. And the first time that we've seen him earlier in the episode, he was Yusuke's rival. The two of them beat each other up on the regular and Kazuma Kuwabara never won never won once Yusuke always kicked Kuwabara's ass and that's just how it went but upon his death Kuwabara is distraught he is causing a ruckus he is reaching towards Yusuke's memorial shouting you were supposed to be there for me and I can't explain to you how much of an effect that that scene had on me as a kid. You know, learning that, oh, this very one-dimensional character has issues. He has problems. He has things going on in his life. He has insecurities. He has doubts. And it made me feel better that I had those same insecurities, those same doubts. Because I wasn't alone. Someone else was also feeling this way. And again, getting back to kind of the, the, the dub argument for this. This was maybe my first real cognizant introduction to uh, Christopher Sabat. Who most people know as Vegeta, Piccolo, Armstrong, All Might. Um, I, I, I have to preface this because I... I know it's going to bother me because somebody's going to be like, wait, you just a Dragon Ball. I was strictly an ocean dub kid when I was growing up because uh, that was what was available to me. I didn't get into Funimation until later on. But, um, I mean, Brian Drummond was my Vegeta just, and Scott McNeil was my Piccolo. So just, you know, get off my back about it. But I 
absolutely adore Sabat's take on Kuwabara. And it's hilarious because this is not the kind of voice that you would expect to come out of a junior high school. <laughs> uh, it's deep and it's gravelly and it's, you know, Urameshi. I I love Kuwabara. And he is the most human character, and not just because he is, you know, genetically the most human character in the show. But he is someone who grows. He's someone who changes. He's someone who has pretty serious folly and someone who continues to move forward despite his issues and his flaws. And he is fiercely loyal and independent uh, an independent warrior who will push and push and push and push until he's able to break through any obstacle. But he's also just a little guy. He's just a little guy who's constantly like, what the hell is going on? I don't understand this. Um, however, while he is usually used as comic relief, he is also oftentimes the character who is the voice of reason, which is strange considering you know who Kuwabara is as a character however there are moments like in a specific art that we're going to talk about in a second where you know the odds seem stacked against our team our heroes and Yusuke is ready to pop off because that's what Yusuke does he's an angry little guy but Kuwabara is the one to stop him Kuwabara the hot hand the character who would jump at the opportunity to fight to throw hands with somebody he is the one who says we need to be better we can't sink down to their level just because they are and he becomes this you know this beacon of light and truth and hope in this story that i just i just fell in love with uh but he's not alone in rounding out this, you know, this almost, uh, this Jobro adventuring party. Uh, we've also got Hiei and Karama, two characters who, just from their design, you probably know and you probably recognize. Hiei was really my introduction to the edgelord trope in anime. I know, again, there's Vegeta, but Vegeta's much more explosive as a character, whereas Hiei is a is that dark brooding, like, no one understands me, but I'm going to be silently broody, and I'm going to just kill. My language is death. And he's just, again, the littlest of guys. And he has a design, you know, his little cloak, his spiky hair, a third of his height is his hair. And he was a character that I was immediately enamored with because I was also a little guy <laughs> when I was watching this. Um, but he's a character who grows and changes throughout the show as well. He gets very much that kind of Vegeta slash Piccolo arc where he goes from being an outright enemy to Yusuke to being one of his fiercest allies. And he's joined and introduced in the same arc or in the same you know story as, as uh, Kurama. Karaba, who people may recognize the name from Naruto and other uh, other stories that a demon fox has appeared in, is the human host, uh, Shuichi, is the human host of the spirit Yoko, a fierce, you know, demon bandit that has been trapped, more or less, inside the body of this human person. 
And through his upbringing, through his childhood, through two loving parents, he has grown to love the human life that he has and has to deal with the duality of the human life that he has adopted and the demon life that he left behind. And Kurama is the analytic character of the bunch. He's the one who is, you know, he's, he's for my Final Fantasy XV fans, he's the Ignis of the group, always coming up with new recipes. Uh, he is the one who is often the logic of the group, the voice of reason, the person who looks before he leaps, and he makes a great counter to Hiei because he is a demon who has learned to grow compassion and is one of the most human characters in the story. He learned to love the circumstances that he was in and has grown to see the human race and humans in general as a net positive, while Hiei uses them mostly for food, but also for, you know, target practice. And this core four of Yusuke, Kuwabara, Hiei, and Kurama make up our main hero cast. If there is a conflict, they're usually the ones that are there most of the time. And we see the growth of them um, initially as rivals and later on as allies for Yusuke grow and evolve as they do grow and evolve. Their relationship with Yusuke, our main protagonist, grows as they learn more about themselves, as they get more powerful. It is a shonen battle manga, you know, so we got to get, you know, friendship through punching. But watching them grow, watching them change, watching them evolve over the course of the story is a sight to behold. But they're not the only main characters. They're not the only ones that round out the supporting cast. We gotta talk about the ladies! Botan is a character that I will fight for on any given day. The dub in the, in the you know, late 90s, early 2000s brought in a take on Botan that I don't think anyone expected, and it's certainly not one without its detractors. The Mid-Atlantic, you know, bingo uh, delivery for Botan has always been a point of contention, but for me, I've always adored this voice. The choice by Cynthia Kranz, who plays Botan, to make her as bubbly and as, you know, timeless sounding as she does sticks with me and is something that, again, when you, you know, do the crossover to the dub and you listen to the dub, makes it so unique. And the entire cast is fantastic, but Botan specifically for how much of a change there is from the original, you know, the original Japanese cast to the English cast is the most, I think, glaring of the differences. But I think a lot of, you know, shonen stories, especially ones that were produced in the late 80s throughout the 90s, uh, do not great things with their female cast. Um, usually shunting them off to the side, not really giving them anything to work with. But thankfully... This story does not do that. The, oh my god, the 
the female cast of Yu Yu Hakusho is one of the best that I've ever seen. I mean, right off the bat, Keiko Yukimura, who is played brilliantly by Laura Bailey, another mainstay in voice acting today, um, presents this character who very easily could have been a damsel in distress and at times does fall into that. You know, I won't avoid it. I won't lie. But she is a headstrong character who does not just wait around for Yusuke. She is someone who is, and that's funny considering what happened, but regardless, she is a character that has action. And she is someone who is willing to go to great lengths to get what she wants and to be, uh, to defend the people that she cares about. Uh, similarly, Genkai, maybe the best, you know, example of the grumpy teacher trope as this old master who does not take shit from nobody and who will absolutely body anyone that tries to uh, take her lightly is magnificent. She's a character that I have never grown tired of. And even though she is very much a supporting character, She's a character that could fill her own anime just by itself. Uh, even characters who don't get as much play throughout the entire show, like your Shizuru Kuwabara, um, your Koto, you know, your Yukina, you know, they are still given time to shine, and they are still given stories. There's a whole subplot in the greatest tournament arc of all time for Shizuru, who falls in love with an, you know, an antagonist character. And it's beautiful, and in a lesser story, that story would not have happened. And so, the... Just the depth of character that we find in this story for both male and female characters makes it one of the best casts that you've ever, ever seen. Uh, that's not even to speak of Koenma, who is your your classic boss character, uh, who is a little baby. You want to talk about little guys? He's the littlest of guys. Uh, he's the son of King Yama. He's this, you know... He manifests as this little toddler with a little, you know, pacifier and everything. But we find out that the pacifier is actually a power dampener. And he is wonderful. He's snarky. He, you know, verbally jousts with Yusuke on the reg. And he is a character who also grows and changes because of his connection to the characters and how the narrative shapes them. And speaking of narrative shaping characters, the villains in this show are next level. Next level. And that comes from the idea of escalation. Now we've seen the, you know, we, we've seen examples of power creep and behind every big bad there's an even bigger bad. But this show does a great job in that escalation of bringing together characters that provide challenges that are not just greater than the villain that came before, but also different from the characters that came before. You know, we get the original, you know, little demon trio of Goki, Hiei, and Kurama, and then that escalates into the four saint beasts. That escalates into the Black Black Club and the Taguro brothers. That escalates into Team Taguro, and the younger Taguro being this absolute wall, while 
at the same time being a worst-case scenario for Yusuke, a character who believes in a lot of the same things that Yusuke does and was in the same space that he was years before and made the wrong choice. And that's also reflected in Shinobu Sensui, who's maybe my favorite antagonist of the whole show. It's tough. Between him and Taguro, it's really, really, really tough. But having the villains of this story be so well-rounded, giving us depth, giving us pathos and characters that very easily could be he evil, fight now, having them all based in realistic motivations to grow wanting to selfishly be the best and the lengths that he would go to do that. Shinobu Sensui dealing with trauma and how that can affect someone, especially a lot of trauma at a very small amount of time. These villains have depth to them that you don't always find in shonen antagonists, and it makes every conflict that they have that much greater because of not just the physical threat, but the psychological, the emotional, and the philosophical threat that they pose to our heroes. And that's not to say that they don't know how to throw down outside of just the emotional, you know, the emotional conflict. There is some brilliant fighting in this show. Brilliant choreography, wonderful animation against Studio Pirat doing just the most. And they really do take the time to make these villains and make these conflicts and make these fights feel big time. There is no greater moment of two characters squaring up after everything that's built up to it than Toguro and Yusuke squaring up in the final match of the Dark Tournament. I challenge you to find a better, like, hype-as-fuck moment than the two of them standing across with Taguro bulking up to 80% immediately. It's, it's incredible. But your greatest villains are only as good as your greatest hero. And I know that the saying has been reversed in the past, but this time I truly do believe that your hero makes the story. If you are not rooting for the protagonist, if you are not wanting to see them succeed, then your story has a fundamental problem. And Yusuke Urameshi might just be my favorite anime protagonist of all time. Now, I have to admit, I do have a hero bias when it comes to stuff like this. Um, first of all, I, lunch, I, I, I love characters that punch good. I've always loved characters that punch good. That's been something that I've taken from very early on when I was a punchy character in my own childhood and young adulthood. But I love characters who have to physically push past limits and have to physically you know, approach problems. That's not to say that there isn't value in characters who are more mental or emotional, but I love characters that punch. And I also love characters, you know, like your your Batman, your Captain Americas, your Daredevils, who have to overcome challenges and are often on the back foot and seen as an underdog having to deal with supernatural and 
further up the food chain power level threats and finding a way to fight them. But Yusuke is very particular and very, for me, unique in that when he starts off his hero's journey, he is a kid who is the worst. <laughs> um, there are lots of things that you could say about Yusuke Urameshi, but being, you know, your shy, humble, innocent protagonist is not one of them. He is a kid with an attitude problem. He is a kid who is willing to fight anybody, whether they be a baby, a girl, or somebody's grandma. Like, he does not care. He will throw hands immediately if it means getting to his goal. And Yusuke has to grow and learn across this story about not just the world around him, but about himself. And I know that that doesn't sound unconventional when it comes to anime protags, but he is a very unconventional anime protag. You get a lot of the traditional, you know, protagonist story actually through Kuwabara as a character. It's very much in the same way that Joey Wheeler in you in I was gonna say you you Yu Gi Oh, uh, uh, in. Yu-Gi-Oh, Joey Wheeler is really the one who goes on the hero's journey, and he's kind of secretly the protagonist of the story. Kuwabara is very much in the same vein, where he is the audience surrogate, kind of reacting to things as like, this is fucking weird, and you guys don't think this is weird. Yusuke rolls with a lot, and he is a character who has to grow into being a protagonist. He is a character who, in any other anime, would probably be a supporting character. But in this story, he is the protagonist. He is the one who grows and changes and pushes the story forward. And watching him learn about his role in things is phenomenal. There are things that I don't love about his story, you know, the eventual reveal that, oh, he's the descendant of this powerful demon king, and he's got demon blood, and I've never loved that aspect of the character, I've never loved that direction that the story went in, um, I always still love, you know, the, the character who has greatness thrust upon them, rather than the character who was born with greatness, but, Yusuke learns over the course of the story to not just accept himself, but to accept others, to accept help, to accept that there are things that he can't control alone. And that is a story that I think everyone can relate to, whether or not they accept that story, uh, whether or not they're you know good about asking for help. It's a story that is necessary for people to experience. And Yusuke is one of the most human characters that I've ever encountered. You know, Yusuke is a character who, in every, in every relationship that he has, he bonds through them th- with them through some kind of trauma. Whether it be, you know, great and supernatural or intimate and personal. Um, Yusuke is a character who I bonded with through my own trauma growing up. He was a character who was wildly misunderstood, a character who felt like he had to rely on himself very early on in his life, and a character who deals with a staggering amount of loneliness and unfortunately lets that manifest in negative ways. 
And he has to learn throughout this story to become more in tune with himself, to grow and accept his trauma. And he's a character who I always look to whenever I'm, you know, going through a rough patch or whenever I'm having struggles or whenever I'm, you know, trying to think of my ideal, you know, character that I, you know, whether I want to, you know, base a performance on or whether I want to, you know, emulate in my own life, Yusuke is a character that I look to. And it's funny because I don't usually do that with anime protagonists. Um, Typically, the main character of the story is never the character that I gravitate to the most. With Dragon Ball, Goku's your protagonist. I always gravitate to Gohan or Future Trunks. Um, You're Naruto. Obviously, there's Rock Lee for the character that I went towards. Um, Bleach, you know, we're talking about Shonen's big three here. Um, Bleach, I was a stark Renji guy all the way through. I love that little redheaded psycho. Um, and I guess rounding out that group with One Piece, I love Zoro, and I always have, um, but, you know, as good as Luffy is, I was more of an ace guy, you know, I've always gravitated towards the supporting cast, but with this anime, Yusuke was my guy from the get-go, from the beginning, and... Maybe that is due to the fact that in any other anime, he would probably be a supporting character. But here, you got to see all the things that I love about those kind of characters brought into someone who led the story. And it made me believe that maybe I could lead a story one day. Yusuke is a character that I adore and is a character who goes through so much over the course of this story and grows and changes as a person. And I think that is most exemplified in the greatest tournament arc of all time. You knew we had to get to it eventually. You can't talk about Yu Yu Hakusho without talking about it. The Dark Tournament is the greatest tournament in all of anime. Period. Bar none. You can say another tournament, not as good as the Dark Tournament. And that's fine. And I think that, you know, people who don't want to accept that, they're in denial, and maybe they just need to, you know, maybe they haven't watched it or they need to rewatch it. Dark Tournament is the tops. And there's a reason why whenever people talk about, oh, what's the best tournament? Or, oh, what's the best arc in anime? Dark Tournament gets brought up every single time. Because it is not just a battle story. It is also a personal, emotional story upon the philosophical battle between external gratification and internal gratification. Now, there's a reason why this tournament is different from every other tournament. And I, you know, I think a lot of people when they hear, oh, the greatest tournament of all time, they immediately are like, what about Dragon Ball? What about Hunter Hunter? What about all these other examples? And the difference between the Dark Tournament and other tournaments of its same ilk are threefold. First of all, the circumstances that bring us to this tournament. Every tournament that you find yourself in, in an anime, is entered in by choice. Goku and friends enter into the 
Tenkaichi Budokai, the uh, World Martial Arts Tournament, the greatest under the heavens tournament by choice. They want to be the best. They want to test their limits. They want to fight against the greatest, you know, fighters that the world has to offer. Other tournaments are entered into because of a goal by choice. The Dark Tournament, by its very nature of why Team Urameshi is entered into it, is not. They do not have a choice. This is immediately putting them on the back foot because if they are not present for this tournament, if they do not enter into it, everyone that they know, not everyone that they love, everyone that they know is under threat of losing their life. So the team is brought together because they don't have another choice. It's either enter this tournament or everyone they know dies. So immediately it sets itself apart from the circumstances and from the stakes of why they're in the tournament in the first place. The length of this tournament is also ridiculous. Most of the uh, runtime for this uh, for this manga and arguably for a great portion of the anime is dedicated to the Dark Tournament. This is the crown jewel of that story. Anytime someone thinks about Yu Yu Hakusho, oftentimes they think about the Dark Tournament because it stands as the pinnacle of that story. Maybe not my favorite arc, but it is the pinnacle of that story when it comes to interest, when it comes to readership, viewership, um, how much uh, Tagashi is just absolutely firing on all cylinders. The Dark Tournament is meaty. It is hefty. It doesn't pull its punches. It doesn't breeze through rounds, though while not all rounds are created equal, the story of Yusuke Urameshi and his team going through each round, there is no skipping through it. There is no filler. You are locked in from the very first chapter all the way through until the end. And then also the variety. What makes the Dark Tournament unique is that the rules are decided upon in every round. The captains of each team that are matched up against each other come together and they decide on the format. They decide what constitutes a win. They decide how many participants are entered and involved. And so there is no getting bored with this. There is no getting bored with the format of each round because each round is different from each other. That being said, there are still, you know, oh, we're going to do a one-on-one fights and that's, you know, how it goes. And that is fine but also having a team format in this tournament sets it apart from other battle shonen that are used to all right you fight this guy one-on-one you fight this guy one-on-one you fight this guy one-on-one and then you win there are different circumstances and different ways to quote-unquote win every round that may not necessarily even involve winning the fight so just from the get-go, it is a different beast. It is built differently. Now, the prelude to this story involves, as I mentioned before, Toguro. Specifically, the younger Toguro. Now, Yusuke and Kuwabara are set to uh, rescue this ice princess, Yukina, who eventually we find out is the sister of Hiei. And during this conflict, during this rescue operation, they run afoul of the Toguro brothers, Elder Toguro, who is just the weirdest dang-ass freak you've ever seen, and the younger Toguro, who is a built 
jacked up bodybuilder wall titan of a man. And it is only through the cooperation of the teamwork of Yusuke and Kuwabara that they are able to topple Toguro. However, afterwards, Toguro, the, to, the brothers Toguro, um, are found to be alive, having thrown the fight against Yusuke and Kuwabara while they were fighting their hardest. The brothers Toguro threw the fight to win a large sum of money for Sakio, who is a character that we do not need to get into for the purposes of the story. And it is through this fight that Toguro sees in Yusuke a potential rival, somebody who he could finally match himself up against. Toguro is a character who is constantly looking for the next challenge because he wants to be the best and has sacrificed his soul to be the best. And eventually that means you grow tired and you grow bored. But Yusuke is someone who he is excited about. Yusuke is someone who he sees potential in that he could test his limits against. And so he shows up after Yusuke thinks he killed him and says, I am going to burn down your world if you do not enter into this tournament. Bring your friends, bring whoever you want, you're coming to the island, you're going to fight in this tournament, and I'm going to fucking kill you. And so we get this quick buildup of, holy shit, these are the stakes, bringing together the cast, Yusuke, Kuwabara, Hiei, Kurama, Yusuke goes to train with Genkai, and all of them show up ready to go at the Dark Tournament. And what this does, and something that I've always found fascinating about this, is that the Dark Tournament takes place almost entirely in one location, the Dark Tournament Arena. However, with it being a neutral ground for the human, demon, and spirit realms, you still get an incredible amount of world-building in this story. You learn about how much the demon world has impacted the human realm. You learn about the tentative and really, you know, fragile uh, truce between the spirit and the demon realm. You learn about how much these conflicts over generations have shaped where we are today. You see how demons react to Team Urameshi. You see how much... You know, demons have varieties of experiences, both as a, uh, both as the haves as well as the have-nots, and you get to see characters from all walks of life, whether they're they be demon, human, whatever, and you learn about them. You learn about why they're in the tournament. You learn about why this tournament matters. And that helps to build up the tension in each round because there are characters who you do not want Yusuke and company to lose against. But there are also characters that you don't want to see beaten. And that gives you so much dramatic tension, that gives you so much depth to something that very easily could be punch, punch, we win, we go home. Now, this story, as I mentioned before, isn't just about external gratification. It's not just about winning the fight. It's not just about beating Toguro, saving the lives of the people they care about. It's also about internal gratification. It's a story about self-acceptance and emotional maturity. Because Yusuke, like many kids who grew up angry and repressed, 
has a hard time dealing with his emotions and, I mean, facing them. Yusuke is one of the characters that I have always loved because I have seen myself in him. There's a funny moment, not in this arc, but in the uh, following arc, the Chapter Black arc, the best arc of the show, maybe, where he is he has gone through the dark tournament he's gone through every single trial that he's faced and he sees the shonen problem of oh behind every big bad there's an even bigger bad and he gets so frustrated after finding out there's another bad guy he's punching the ground he's like i thought this story was done and I find out that there's another guy who is just as bad, if not badder, than the guy I already nearly gave my life to beat. It's a very human moment and a very, like, meta moment of r- recognizing the limitations of stories like this. But this story in the Dark Tournament is about Yusuke learning to be okay with not being okay. And learning to feel and learning to accept those feelings. You know... He is a character who has spent a large amount of his life being misunderstood and not, you know, being given the time to figure out what the hell is going on with him. And over the course of the story, through these lived experiences, through his mentorship with Genkai, and ultimately through the death of a very important character, Yusuke learns to become emotionally mature now that doesn't mean that he is mature in the sense of oh he will always make the right choice and he you know has grown past his flaws yusuke grows over the course of this arc to learn that it is okay to feel feelings and it is okay to let those feelings show because yusuke has a trust issue yusuke has this inability to trust people to understand him and over the course of this arc we see that that has grown into an inability to trust himself and watching him not just become aware of this but to also grow past it is one of the reasons why the dark tournament means as much as it does because this story isn't just about yusuke the story is about Genkai. The story is about Kuwabara. The story is about Toguro. This is a story about growing up and letting go. About learning from the past and not letting it consume you. Toguro presents a threat to Yusuke not just on a physical level, but on a philosophical level. He's a character who, like Yusuke, would give up anything to be the best and to protect what he values. But Toguro chooses to let what you know, let the fear of losing what he values dictate his life while Yusuke learns to accept loss and learns to accept that he can't do everything by himself. Toguro has created an island unto himself in that he can't trust anybody to to fulfill his wants and desires, and so he has bottled everything inside him and has chosen to rely on nobody whereas yusuke learns the opposite lesson there is every chance over the course of this that he will grow into making the same choices to grow but ultimately what makes this story work is that he doesn't 
And we see why Tagoro was in the wrong because he couldn't let go. Because he couldn't let go of his fears, his doubts, and he couldn't let go of what made him, in his mind, special. And knowing to let, knowing when to let go is almost just as important as knowing when to hold on. Which brings us to Yoshihiro Togashi, the creator of Yu Yu Hakusho, and someone who has a checkered history with anime and with manga. Yoshihiro Togashi is one of the most successful mangaka of all time, creating not just one, but two massive hits, and is also the prime example of how difficult the life of a manga artist is. Shonen Jump and the editors behind Shonen know how the machine works, and they take a lot of pride in making that machine work to the detriment of creators and to the detriment of artists and writers and the people who create the stories that bring people to Shonen in the first place. A lot of times the most successful manga creators are overworked, are depressed, are exhausted because the workload is so oppressive and heavy. I mean, you want to talk about the, you know, the climate and the working conditions for uh, U.S. comic artists. They got nothing on manga artists. It is a labor of love, and oftentimes it's, you know, it's a labor of love for something that often doesn't love you back. The exhaustion and physical toll of being you know a creator not just in manga but a successful creator in manga means that you have to give up a lot to continue that success to continue that role and that leads to i mean terrible mental and emotional conditions and oftentimes terrible physical conditions yoshihiro togashi over the course of yu yu show shows and not just his you know his blurbs from the creator but also in the story itself his exhaustion his physical ailments he grows to be you know to suffer several physical ailments because of the immense workload pressed upon him and at a certain point Yu Yu Hakusho just kind of stops the final arc in the story, The Three Kings, is maybe the greatest example of missed potential that I've ever seen in a story. Because you can tell by the time we get here that Tagashi has become disillusioned with the shonen machine and is just wanting it to end. And so... While I think The Three Kings has a lot of potential as a story, you see over the course of it that Tagashi is just trying to get to the end. He is just trying to get through it. 
And every chapter that he releases during that time, every episode of the anime that goes through during, you know, during this arc feels like there's something missing. There's a passion there that is missing. And in December of 1993, Tagashi ended Yu Yu Hakusho. The story does not have what I would call the most satisfying ending. The arc basically becomes, let's just get this going. And, you know, the ending of the story basically amounts to the uh, the quote-unquote fixed ending of Mass Effect 3, where it's just being told a lot of stuff in retrospect. And... Upon completion of Yu Yu Hakusho, Tagashi sent out a letter alongside the final chapter. Um, And the letter reads like this. If I'm honest, I'm feeling a great relief and pleasure at the thought that I've finally been able to finish Yu Yu Hakusho. It's not that I've lost all emotional attachment to the work, but I feel that my stress levels had greatly surpassed my will to work. The six months leading up to the concluding chapter felt awfully long to me. To tell the truth, it had already been decided that Yu Hakusho was going to end in December 1993. Or rather, this was a decision that I had forced on the editorial staff. There were many reasons for this, all in about 50 big and small ones, but in broad strokes, these were the major reasons. One, my body. Two, thoughts I had about what it means to draw manga. And three desire to do other things than work. Point three is out of the question for a professional manga writer. Basically, I want to indulge in my hobbies, rest, and sleep as much as I could. Most of my 50 reasons fall into this category. Point one was caused by point three not being fulfilled for too long. When when YYH began, serialization... Gonna start over. When Yu Yu Hakusho began, serialization up until the start of the Dark Tournament... I had half a day off every week in which I caught up on sleep. Other than that, all I had time for were occasional naps, and I'd indulge in my hobbies by sleeping less. For a while, I quite enjoyed this. But my HP, as they say in RPGs, was gradually but surely falling. And around the time that I wrote a 31-page one-shot and simultaneously had to do color pages, my heart began to hurt every time I went without sleep. And then it began to hurt more and more often. This was when I seriously started to think about the pace of production for manga. I thought, I probably won't be able to keep regular hours, but if I sleep as much as I want to, when I want to, how much would I be able to produce? I tried it out. I immediately began to fall behind on my schedule. But I tried to get some sleep every night. Around this time, my feelings about writing manga as a profession began to change. I don't want to die from overwork. If I die, I want it to be when I'm having fun or when I'm drawing manga for fun. Color pages are scary. One-shots are scary. I also began to use some time before going to bed to relieve stress. I fell even more behind. And at the point when, where Sensui and Yusuke were fighting, this reached its peak. But also around this time, I realized I was starting to experience a different kind of stress. Because I had stopped overworking my body and started to relieve my stress, I was feeling stressed that I couldn't draw manga in a way that satisfied me. This is where point two comes in. I believe that anyone who draws has a desire to attract people with their art, but this is an ambition that I had suppressed for a long time. This is because back when I had just had my debut, my editor at the time had shown me a manga page by Hagiwara Kazushi, 
bastard. I felt that if I were honest with myself, my art would never be able to compete with something like this. But I was never able to throw away my ideal of being able to draw manga without help from other people. A few times during the run of Yu Yu Hakusho, I finished my manuscripts all by myself. All of these instances were when my stress levels were at their highest. I don't know if anyone will understand, but when I was stressed because I wasn't satisfied with my manga, the only way for me to relieve this stress was to draw all my manga by myself. As a result, those chapters ended up horrible. Both the characters and the backgrounds were messy, the one-shot, two-shots, Karasu versus Karama, Yusuke versus Sensui, the scene where Yusuke meets Ryzen, I drew most of those alone. The latter two were finished in a half a day before my deadline, as a reader guessed and criticized in a letter. This might mean I fail as a professional, but I was satisfied. I had already started to think that no matter what anyone says, no matter how messy the finished pages are, I just wanted to draw this by myself, and I had no reason not to go through it. It saddens me to say this, but I had explored every possible direction for the Yu Yu Hakusho characters that I could in the context of a professional publication. All I could do at this point was to start deconstructing the characters, or go on repeating the same storylines over and over until the readers got bored. My attempts to deconstruct the characters were, of course, turned down by Jump. I didn't have the strength, physically and mentally, to keep doing the same thing over and over. So I went ahead and did what I had always wanted to do. If I ever manage to have a long serialization in Jump, I will end it on my own terms. I knew that Jump dropped a manga after 10 weeks if the reader's surveys proved it to be unpopular, and I knew this when I started working for them. The system proved encouraging for me, and I learned a lot by being aware of readers' reactions. But I ended up wanting to draw manga for myself, without thinking about anyone's reactions. I don't believe that anything I came up with on this premise will live up to Jump's standards, so I will not try. In conclusion, I ended Yu Yu Hakusho because of my own selfishness. I'm sorry. Yoshihiro Togashi had grown bitter about the process and about something that he had loved for a very long time. And he didn't want to be that way. He didn't want to hate something that he should be loving. So he took time to step away and let his health recover, let his mental health recover. And it proved to be a pretty good idea because it wasn't the end for him as a successful manga artist. He went on to create a little something called Hunter Hunter that has grown into a huge phenomenon in manga and continues to top charts of best anime of all time. Sometimes knowing when to let go is just as important as holding on. In conclusion, this story means more to me than I can explain. And it's funny, there's a show that I watch all the time, and this is going to be a weird comparison, but stick with me. Um, there's a show that I watch called Shorzy, created by Jared Kiso, that was a spinoff of one of my most beloved shows, Letterkenny. And in the most recent season, Shorzy says a line that 
I think encapsulates a lot of what Yu Yu Hakusho and Yoshihiro Togashi's story encapsulates. It's not success unless you have someone to share it with. Yu Yu Hakusho and Yu's case story is based very deep in loneliness and trying to find someone to share that success with. The story is about finding your happiness and knowing that you don't have to be happy alone. That you don't have to struggle alone. That you don't have to suffer alone. I fell in love with the story at a very important time in my life when I needed to know that someone else was feeling this way when I needed to know that I wasn't the only one when I needed to know that I wasn't alone and I have continued to love this story even more as time goes on because of the themes and the journey that Yusuke goes on learning about himself, learning about the family you choose. And, you know, talking about something you love is difficult. For 280 episodes, talking about something you love is very difficult. And there's a reason why it's taken me so long to talk about this and why I love it so much. Chasing the dragon called Nostalgia is a fool's errand. You are never going to get the feeling that you had when you first had it. But sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that is necessary for you to appreciate what you have. I will always long for the feeling that I had discovering Yu Yu Hakusho for the first time, but I will never long for the circumstances that made me feel that way in the first place. Over the course of my life, since I discovered that show, I have learned to love. I have learned to lean on others, and though I don't always do it, I have learned that trusting other people and asking for help is okay, just as Yusuke learned. There's a line in the show, I did a quote at the top, but there's a line in the show spoken by Genkai where she says, no human is ever a one-man show. Every decision you make will affect the countless people that care about you. Now, I haven't even scratched the surface on the story of it. You know, we haven't talked about Chapter Black. We haven't talked about some of the greatest moments, but I want you to experience it just like I did. You know, even after all this time, this show, this story is still teaching me things. And I want to spread that around. I want to tell people about it because, you know, over 20 years have passed since I first laid eyes on the adventures of Yusuke Urameshi and his journey still resonates with me to this day. Because at the heart of it all, Yusuke's story is my story. 
That's why I was glued to the screen as a 10-year-old kid watching the adventures of my favorite delinquent spirit detective. That's why I fell in love with the world it established, as well as each and every one of the characters we meet over the course of 112 episodes. That's why, after all this time, I still tell everyone I can to watch it. And ultimately, that's why I love Yu Yu Hakusho. That new intro goes so hard, it drives, ah! This is your weekly review, the segment of our show where I review something weekly, and right now we are reviewing the first of several Doctor Who specials in 2023 to celebrate not just 60 years, but... A brand new era for Doctor Who. Uh, This is, of course, entitled The Star Beast, and it reintroduces us essentially to not just the franchise, but also David Tennant and Catherine Tate as the leads of this show. Uh, Previously, they had to part ways under very tragic circumstances way back in 2009. Oh, God, what a what a time. What a time. What a time. Um, As the 10th Doctor and Donna Noble, here they reunite as the 14th Doctor and Donna Noble, though the 14th Doctor is basically just the 10th Doctor again. (laughs) And not just because it's David Tennant, but he retains everything from the 10th Doctor, his face, his mannerisms, his memories, and... I mean, granted, all the Doctors retain all of their memories, but this really does feel like a third lease on life for David Tennant's Doctor. And you know what? I get it. I get it. I've talked about it before. I love me some David Tennant. Christopher Eccleston will always be my Doctor. I've stated that before. I've talked about it. Uh, I talked about it last week, in fact, in our roundtable discussion with Anne and Doug. If you haven't listened to that, go check that out. But I, I, there, there is something special about David Tennant in the role of the Doctor that has always kind of uh, enraptured me and kind of lit up and scratched a very particular itch in my brain. He loves this stuff. He loves this stuff. He loves being part of this franchise. He loves this character. He loves this world and all the worlds that the Doctor and uh, their various companions visit. But this really was a boys are back in town kind of moment, bringing back two of the most beloved characters in the franchise and a pairing that people loved and really letting them go for one last ride throughout this entire month. I absolutely adored this episode. It was, I mean, first of all, just a ridiculous jump in production value. They've got that Disney money now, gang, and I I am blown away by it for a few reasons. I mean, 
The production value obviously is fantastic. The episode started off with essentially a recap for people who either have a bad memory, uh, just wanted to relive what happened, were too young to be watching when it did happen, or anything else, just to kind of catch you up on the stories of both characters. And then it dives right into higher production value, the sets, the effects, the sonic screwdriver, which is gorgeous, and I need one. I need one! Can all of a sudden do all of these, like, it can make little, like, uh, little map projections. It can create walls that are blaster-proof. Like, it's incredible. And the sonic screwdriver has never been able to do that. But I'm totally okay with it doing that because it's ridiculous and it's sci-fi. Uh, we were talking at our friends giving this past weekend as of this recording about how you can make any Christmas movie work with its leaps and logic by just saying it's Christmas magic. And that's kind of what you have to go into any Doctor Who thing. It's like there's a science explanation for this. Everything's wibbly wobbly. And I I adored it. I really, really did. And not just that, though. I loved the juxtaposition of having those higher production values, effects, sets, camera work, cinematography, paired with some very real VFX and hokey, schlocky bullshit, which I've always loved in my Doctor Who. The Meep! was incredible and it was a like animatronic it was really there it wasn't all cgi which is incredible um the thwarps the thwarp warriors i'm probably saying that wrong uh or the warth the the rarth the whatever the bug people that are trying to hunt down the meep all looked practical. I don't know if they were practical, but they looked practical, and I love that kind of thing. There is a certain charm to Doctor Who that has always been there through a very BBC DIY, we just gotta make what we have work, and that was not lost in this episode, and I adored that. Um, The, obviously... The uh, chemistry between Catherine Tate and David Tennant is off the charts. It's like they didn't even skip a beat. This could literally have taken place the very next year after Journey's End, and that would have been totally... It it wouldn't have felt out of place at all. Um, The effects, like I said, were really fun. Uh, The storyline was fantastic. Can we talk about... The TARDIS. The new TARDIS interior, I am obsessed. I posted on Instagram, uh, at that daring man, that I hope everyone is ready for Doctor Who to be my entire personality once again. Because it has been a good long while since I've been this enthused with Doctor Who. And that new console room is exquisite. I wasn't sure about it at first because it was just very stark white. Um, I loved all of the ramps, not a single piece of stairs in sight, which is very cool. But all of a sudden it just started changing colors. And I love when stuff just changes colors. It's got the round things again. It looks gigantic. Like it's one of those things where you know, due to budget restraints and whatnot, uh, the TARDIS interior can, even though it is supposed to be, you know, bigger on the inside, still looks kind of like crammed into a closet. But this looks like, I mean, a palace. And I love the kind of science fantasy of that. Um, The console room looks incredible. I love the center console. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I really, really dig it. 
And then just the story itself. I mean, having this meep, you know, there's a there's a real quick change. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but there's a quick changeover halfway through, which is fantastic. You know, I'm just going to spoil it. Uh, having the meep be like this evil thing. I had an idea that it was going to be evil as soon as I saw it, but getting that kind of like, it suddenly turns into this gremlin creature. I'm like, yes, I love this. This is classic Doctor Who. And it's just a wonderful story about people coming back together and obviously the universe converging on Donna Noble once again. We don't know why, but it is. They also set up the overarching mystery that I think is going to go through all three of these specials of why David Tennant. Why this face once again? I'm excited to get to that answer. I I'm so glad that they didn't answer it immediately. It makes me really happy, really excited to see where it goes. And then I think the big elephant in the room, Rose, Donna Noble's daughter, plays by uh, Yasmin Finney, was incredible. I loved this. I loved this character. I want her to be in the TARDIS with the Doctor immediately. Uh, she she was fantastic, and I really I really loved her story in the episode. Russell T. Davies is one of those people, one of those writers who, when he, when he wants things to be subtle, they can be subtle. When he wants things to be loud, he will be loud. And in this episode, loud and proud, he wanted to tell a trans story. And I think that is incredible. Uh, Rose, Donna Noble's daughter, is a trans woman, and having the story being about not just for Donna, but also for Rose, accepting who she is and being who she is, being her authentic self, and having that kind of unlocked by all of the weird, wacky craziness that happens around both of them was fantastic and really allowed for not just the story of two people who love each other and are fiercely loyal to each other to have moments, but also to have them impact the plot and the narrative in a big, big bad way. And having the, this is the thing. Okay. This This is the thing. So back in journey's end, the moment where Donna Noble, who has become the Dr. Donna starts to get overloaded by the uh, by the doctor, by the Time Lord's wisdom. You know, she's going through talking about things and then she just starts saying binary, 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 binary. Having that parlayed into telling a non-binary story was... It was incredible. Like, I, I, I remember sitting there with my partner, we're watching this, and they say... Binary, you know, Donna does basically a generation to turn to the Dr. Donna again. And Rose undergoes that as well because the, and I'm going to do a bad job of explaining this because again, science fantasy, wibbly wobbly. Um, The metacrisis energy from Donna was too much for one person, but having a child allowed that to be split evenly between her and Rose, that they could each handle half of it together and turning it from a binary story into a non-binary story was, I, 
I picked up a pillow and I threw it across the room because I thought it was so cool. And Russell T. Davies, there is a reason why he is back in the back in the saddle and helming this series once again. I loved this story. And I also just love, I mean, the the idea of bringing in quote unquote wokeisms to Doctor Who because Doctor Who's always been woke. I hate to I hate to burst the bubble of anybody who just feels like oh doctor who's woke now y'all it's always been woke i don't i don't i don't know what to tell you i'm sorry it just has it always has been and that's a good thing and including something about not just a a trans story but also you know a character with disabilities a character who deals with pronouns the, the whole pronoun thing between me and the doctor where they're like oh like they ask the meep it's pronouns and meep goes like my it's something like my pronoun is all like i am the meep like i'm always my chosen pronoun is the definite like the i'm always the meep and the doctor goes oh that's me too no way and the doctor's now learning about pronouns and learning about oh i already do that that's amazing like it's it's so very Russell T Davies, and I love every single bit of it. Uh, if you can't tell, I loved this episode. I thought it was a wonderful return to form, wonderful return for these characters and this aspect. And I am so excited for the rest of these specials to take us through the rest of the year. Uh, so that is going to do it for my uh, weekly review of the Star Beast. I cannot wait for next week. It is going to be a blast. But until then, let's roll right on into this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown for the week of November 29th, 2023. This is the segment of our show where I will chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, <sighs> comicsology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. Before we get into this week's books, though, we got to take a look back at last week's with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And let me be very clear, there were several books that could have taken this spot, but ultimately, I chose Wonder Woman number three. This book is just, it's on another level right now. I don't know what I'm expecting every single month, but it is certainly blowing every expectation I have for it out of the water. I, it's, I don't, I don't even know how to articulate how good this book is. Again, this is a book that I was very intent on. I am going to trade weight this. But every single issue that comes out, I'm like, no, I need to know what happens next immediately. So it's it's one of those books that has jumped from one category to another. And I am so, so freaking excited to pick it up every single month. So that's my pick. But that's last week's books. This week we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight books for you to pick up. So let's dive right in with a double feature of Gang War. That's right, gang. I we're gonna see. We are gonna see because we're kicking things off with two installments in the newest amazing Spider-Man book. Gang War. They're having a big ol' event happening in that book that's going to cross over with several different New York-based characters, and we're kicking things off with the alpha, I guess, of the event 
The Amazing Spider-Man Gang War First Strike Number 1. What a title. Um, this is written by Zeb Wells and Cody Ziegler with art by Joey Vasquez and Julian Shaw. And this, as I said before, is the kickoff for this newest event. I have no idea what to expect from this. I love gang warfare stories in my superhero comics. I love when Spider-Man deals with street crime and mafia and mobs and gangs and stuff. So we'll see. This book has been through the ringer. I myself dropped out of the book after the uh, not-so-great reveal of what did Peter do, but Malcolm has been loving it, and I am very interested to see what they do here, and hopefully we might get an appearance by our boys, the Enforcers. Uh, But let's dive into the synopsis and figure out what's going on here. Prelude to Gang War. The supercrime landscape of New York has been on edge. This issue, they jump over that edge. What incites the war? Who hired Shotgun and took out Tombstone? What, if anything, can Spider-Man do about it? Everything you need to know before Gang War officially kicks off next month is here. So yeah, this is your primer. This is to get you ready for that event. And... Releasing the very same week, we're getting Luke Cage Gang War number one. Uh, This is the Luke Cage portion of that story. Obviously, it is written by Rodney Barnes with art by Ramon Box. And I'm just happy that Luke Cage is finally getting his book after City on Fire was unceremoniously taken off the slate during Devil's Reign. I'm hoping this doesn't fall, you know to the same thing because that book was being I mean was being solicited right up until the week that it was supposed to come out so hopefully Luke Cage doesn't go over two and we can get a great Luke Cage story I'm always excited for Luke Cage stories so let's dive into this synopsis and see what's going on with him during this event Gang War First Strike. In the wake of the Anti-Vigilante Act, Luke Cage has been trying to save the city from behind a desk. But a meeting with old friend Danny Rand reminds him of the good old days when problems could be punched in order to solve them. As New York descends into a gang war, ah, they said the title, Luke must use every power he has to protect the innocent and save his city. Yeah, pretty... Tells you pretty much everything you need to know. Uh, I am very excited. I hope this story actually makes it to the shelves, and I can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we go back to the Distinguished Competition with Green Arrow number 6. This is written by Joshua Williamson with art by Trevor Harrison and Sean Isaacs. Isaac say, I, oh, I can never figure out his last name. As well as Phil Hester. And this is continuing on the Ollie falling through time story. Uh, This also has one of my favorite variants when it comes to the covers. I'm hoping I can pick up that Samney cover because it looks incredible. But this story has been largely about Oliver Queen finding his way back home. And there are some complications when it comes to that story. Of course there is. It's an Oliver Queen Green Arrow story. But let's dig into this synopsis and find out what Chapter 6 has for us. The real archenemy of the Green Arrow is finally revealed. Ever since Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, Oliver Queen has been lost in time and space, separated from his loved ones, and now he knows why, and he is pissed off. 
Does he choose revenge or to finally be reunited with his family? So this is going to, I'm assuming, be the conclusion of this first arc. And it looks like we're getting more issues. So I'm very excited about that. I think originally this was only supposed to be six issues. So to see this go into an ongoing makes me very, very, very excited. I cannot wait to pick this up. Next up we have, speaking of anniversary specials, from Doctor Who to Howard the Duck number one. This is written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Joe Quinones. The team is back together. The boys are back in town. And Howard the Duck is celebrating an anniversary. Synopsis reads this. Chip Zdarsky, Joe Kinonas, and friends help Howard celebrate his 50th anniversary in this all-new one-shot. Meet Howard. He's a hard-boiled P.I. with problems by the duckload. But a cosmic all-seeing friend, known as the Peeper, is giving him a chance to see what his life could be. The joys he could have. All the ways his life could suck way less than it does now. In other words, why if... I love... <laughs> So dumb. Oh, it's so dumb, but I love it. I'm very excited. Um, Howard the Duck is a sentimental favorite for me because he is the favorite character of one good brother, famous gaslight actor, Jacob Brown. Um, and I'm very excited to read this. Zdarsky and Kinonas have this gift with Howard that I'm very excited to see what they do now. Um, can't wait to pick this up. But speaking of another brand new number one we've got batman 89 echoes number one this is written by sam ham with art also by joe quinones and this is the sequel to the batman 89 book that we got last year and if it's anywhere near as good as the iron curtain superman 78 sequel has been so far we are in for a good time uh, this is, of course, set in the same realm as the Tim Burton films, uh, meant to essentially be a sequel to both of his films and continuing on that universe and the plans and plots and stories that were in store for that universe before things got weird. Uh, this is a six-issue miniseries, and issue one synopsis goes like this. The Batman 89 sequel arrives, reuniting Sam Hamm and Joe Quinones. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. After Harvey Dent's crusade against Gotham and Batman, the Cape Crusader has disappeared without a trace. In his place, ordinary citizens have taken to the streets to root out crime. As innocents get hurt, the question on everyone's mind is the same. Where is Batman? So yeah, this is really exciting. Obviously, we talked about this when the original series came out last year. Sam Hamm was the screenwriter of the original 89 movie. So bringing him in to work on the comic with Joe Quinones, who has loved those characters and those designs for a really long time, is just a match made in heaven. Um, we do have a tease on this cover that we might be getting some Harley Quinn and Scarecrow action. So the whole, I don't know what, Batman Triumphant or Batman Again or whatever <laughs> that third Burton movie was supposed to be. Um, I'm, I'm really, really excited to pick this up and read this. We've also gotten clues and hints that Batgirl might be making an appearance, which was teased at the end of the last Batman 89 series. So I'm excited to pick this up. Next up, we have Firepower number 29, the penultimate chapter in this story. Written by Robert Kirkman, art by Chris Somney. 
this this book is incredible and i'm forever bitter that we only get 30 issues of it uh synopsis goes like this the battle against the dragon hits far too close to home and the johnson family is left reeling in the aftermath short sweet tells you everything you need to know um yeah i am really sad uh <laughs> fire Pirates 28 was an incredible issue um this book really has been amazing to read through and i will be bitter about this forever that we didn't get more but i will be there as soon as this uh book hits shelves and i can't wait to pick this issue up Next up, we have Action Comics number 1059. This is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, Gene Lun Yang, and Dan Parent, with art by Eddie Barrows, Ibir Ferreira, Victor Bogdanovich, and Marguerite Savage. And, I mean, the book's really good. The book's really good. And we're heading towards the end of Philip Kennedy Johnson's time in Metropolis. Uh, this is also, of course... Continuing on the adventures of Ken and Kong, which I'm really excited about. And then we also, it looks like the next backup, A Heart in Metropolis, is going to focus on Jane Nakamura and John Kent. So it's a book that is very, very good. Um, this era of Philip Kennedy Johnson helming the Superman books is coming to an end. And it looks like Joshua Williamson, uh, alongside Mark Wade and others, are going to be taking the character to new heights next year but for now let's finish off this run of action comics i think we've got at least one more issue before this time is done uh synopsis goes like this protecting metropolis in a battle royale for the ages as the forces of nora stone's blue earth take control of metropolis superman dusts off his war world weapons and armors up alongside steel to take their city back can even the House of L defeat this potent new threat? Meanwhile, the shocking true identities of Nora Stone's mysterious family are revealed, building to a battle royale for the ages. A pivotal issue not to be missed. Plus, the conclusion to Jean Lun Yang and Victor Bogdanovich's new Superman of Metropolis and Dan Parent explores the world of John Kent like never before. Let's just say Dan Parent as well as Marguerite Savage, synopsis people. But I'm kind of sad that the Ken and Kong story is only two issues. But again, he has been probably the most underserved character in this era. Makes me mad, but I'm just glad he's being involved. But yeah, that is this book. The big book of the week, though, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, warts and all, is Captain America number three. This is written by J. Michael Straczynski with art by Jesus Saez as well as Lan Medina. And I understand this book is not everyone's cup of tea. I do think that we need to give it more than two issues before we start throwing up the pitchforks. Look, I more than anybody, wanted to see that hive mind run continue forever. But that's not the way that Marvel works right now. That's not the way the comic book industry works right now. And I really do have faith in this creative team to get this right. So I am excited to pick this up. Let's dive into the synopsis. 
Misty Knight has uncovered a string of murders with seemingly supernatural origins, and Captain America has been marked as the next target. Something about the crime scene strikes Steve as familiar, but can he find the connection between the murders and his past before this mysterious new threat finds him? Again, this has been following, and I talked about this before, this has been following the kind of pattern of Captain America stories where we have a big bombastic story followed by a more intimate story. They did the same thing with Secret Inv- or Secret Empire and then going into the Wade and Samney run. So I am hopeful that this introspective run ends up being a great character piece on Steve Rogers. Uh, I have faith. I have faith. I believe in this team. But that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we've got The Amazing Spider-Man Gang War First Strike number 1. Mouthful. Uh, Luke Cage Gang War number 1. Green Arrow number 6. Howard the Duck number 1. Batman 89. Echoes number 1. Firepower number 29. Action Comics number 1059. And Captain America number 3. Several books are nearing their end while several books are just getting started. So why don't you get on started down the road to your local local comic book shop and pick up some amazing comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is the first time you're joining us on the Geek Explained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here. On the pod, you can write literally anything you want. I will be forced to read every single word. As long as you give me those five stars, the sky's the limit on what you can write. And you will be able to join the likes of our terrific 21. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of our Geek Explained mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the Wednesday show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, uh, get first notification for announcements and when new episodes go live, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, and there is going to be a lot going forward, uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's at Pod. as I continue to try to not suck at Instagram, and for as long as Twitter, I'm not calling it X, is around for. Finally, this Friday and every single Friday, I, alongside my fellow Emerald Archer, Malcolm Russell Nelson, are currently going through every single issue of every single volume of Green Arrow Rebirth. This week, we are tackling volume number six, the finale of the Benjamin Percy Green Arrow saga entitled The Tale or The Trial of Two Cities. It is going to be bombastic. It is going to be incredible. And I cannot wait to share this episode with you. Uh, We are going to be sailing along with the rest of the Green Arrow run for the rest of this month. So join us, won't you? This Friday and every Friday, Star City Fridays are real. We're still workshopping that. So be there or be square not a circle and that is going to do it for this week's episode and that's going to do it for the month of november but fret not december is upon us which means guys gals and non-binary pals it is once again time for in december i'm dedicating the entire month of december to independent comics so i hope you join me next month it is going to be a blast and a half so join us for the first installment of that next 
week. And uh, keep a lookout on Instagram and Twitter for the full slate of episodes coming your way. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. So for Geek Explained, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will see you next time.